Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I'm Sonny Bunch, culture editor at The Bulwark. I'm very, very pleased to be joined today by Kristen Blavelt. Uh, Christian is an entertainment journalist who serves as the uh, managing editor of IndieWire. He regularly appears on TV to discuss film and television, uh, moderates awards season Q&As, has hosted films on Turner Classic Movies, and has presented at South by Southwest and San Diego Comic-Con. Um, but we are here today to talk about Hollywood Victory, the movies, stars, and stories of World War II. Christian, thank you very, very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Honey, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I, uh, I, that, I, that's not true. Nobody believes that. But I am, I'm really excited to talk to you because this is, uh, I, I strongly recommend people pick up this book because every single chapter in it is uh, full of little interesting details. And, and like basically every chapter in this book could be its own book. I mean, it's such a fascinating period of history and the the kind of commingling of Hollywood and and DC and war and everything. I mean, it's like cinematic all on its own. Um, so I'm really excited to have you on today to talk about this stuff. Oh, thank you. And I completely agree. You're really you're right that every chapter could be a book unto itself. The thing about World War II, the thing that keeps me coming back always is that there's always more to learn. It's it's the, the most incredible human story on on every level. You could have lifetime after lifetime after lifetime devoted to studying World War II. You couldn't even scratch the surface. And 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 to address Hollywood's place within this, I think was so interesting because there there have been uh, there have been accounts of what various people in Hollywood have done in the past. Certainly Mark Harris's Five Came Back is, is a great example of that. But I wanted to provide a sweeping narrative for the industry as a whole and how Hollywood collectively met this challenge and, and really rose to meet this this moment. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it really, we, uh, previously on the show, we've, we had, um, hold on, let me just forget the actual title of uh, Hollywood Hates Hitler, Chris Yoger's book, uh, Hollywood yeah. Hates Hitler, which is a really fascinating look at the, the like early HUAC committee yeah. and the, the, uh, the, the ways in which, you know, DC was like not super into Hollywood, even kind of, uh, tangentially going after Germany. But what, what's interesting is that there really wasn't very much of that at all, right? I mean, like in the in the run-up to World War II, you don't have a ton of anti, anti-German agitation for mostly for business reasons, right? Yeah. Uh, Germany was the largest foreign market for Hollywood. So huge business there. Uh, but also I think that, you know, the only non-Jewish studio head was Daryl Levzanik of 20th Century Fox. All the other mm-hmm. studio heads were Jewish. And I do think that there was on the one hand, a feeling that if they were to confront Nazi Germany in any major way, anger Hitler, because he was all, he, Hitler was aware of everything. He would be, always be aware of like any negative portrayal um, in any of these movies that actually they could make life worse for Jewish people in Germany. They could actually, you know, they could cause a retaliation by, by the Nazi authorities. So there was a worry about that. And then also there was just a desire, I think, to assimilate, uh, a, a, you know, these were either immigrants from Europe or, uh, you know, first generation Americans, uh, the, the studio heads. And I think there was just such a desire to not emphasize their, their Jewishness and to assimilate and not make that a primary issue. So engaging with Germany was not, was not a priority by any means. Taking them on yeah. was not a priority. Yeah. I mean, and and as you note in the book, I mean, the polling was against intervention in the war right up until, you know, after Pearl Harbor. I mean, that was yeah. that was not it was not a popular uh, idea on the home front to, to en- enter into the conflict. America was profoundly isolationist. One wonders 
if Germany, four days after Pearl Harbor, had not declared war on the U.S., would we have gone to war with Nazi Germany even then? Because the, the priority was taking on Imperial Japan. And, and a lot of the, the, you know, going into the early days of our involvement in the conflict, so much of the, the thought and the worry and, and the emotion was really directed toward Japan. Fears of invasion. Uh, there was an incredible Life magazine spread from March of 1942 that showed six different possible invasion routes that uh, Japan and and the Nazis could take. This imagined that they were like coordinating military operations, something that Japan and Germany never really actually did, Mm -hmm. but uh, that they could invade the country. And of course, it would be largely led by Japan. So, uh, you know, there really wasn't that great of of a concern about what Germany was doing across the board. I mean, even after Kristallnacht in 1938, actually, we just had the anniversary of that, um, you know, there were, there was basically no interest by the American public at large at even taking in Jewish children who were refugees mm. from the Nazis. Yeah. Um, you know, vast, the American public was vastly against that. So it, it was, it was, it's remarkable when we consider how quickly things shifted after Pearl Harbor, but, uh, it took a lot to get there. Yeah. I, you mentioned refugees. I mean, there there was one one place where there was a huge influx of, of Jewish refugees, and that is to to Hollywood. I mean, they the the studio moguls, um, not all of them, but some of them did a very good job of kind of bringing almost entire villages over yeah. to the United States. Talk about that a little bit and the impact that had on the film industry writ large, because, I mean, that's a huge influx of talent and set aside the humanitarian you know, sure. goodness of that. I mean, just in terms of, of business and, and art. Yeah, I mean, there was the, the prevailing attitude among the studio heads in the 30s was people, not politics. So if they could rescue Jewish people from Germany uh, in the 30s, they could. Uh, Carl Lemley rescued at least 300, sent money to Germany to get them out, bring them to America or elsewhere. Uh, you know, Carl Lemley was the head of Universal. Uh, yeah. It's so during the 30s, about 750 to 1500 uh, refugees of the Nazis, many of them Jewish, uh, settled in the greater Los Angeles area and worked then in Hollywood, worked in the film industry. Um, they added so much. I mean, we're talking about Billy Wilder, we're talking about Fritz Lang, we're talking about, you know, just so many incredible artists who brought a new continental flavor, a new sophistication regarding um, politics and sex and, and just, and language and, and just the way that, you know, there was just entirely a new level of sophistication brought by these, by these artists who mind you, even though they were Jewish in large part, even though they were at least at the very least refugees of the Nazis, we're still, you know, once the war years began, considered enemy aliens because they came from Germany or Austria. Mm-hmm. And so they, once the war started, they had to adhere to an 8 p.m. curfew. They could not leave the house after 8 p.m. Yeah. And uh, even though they had suffered from the Nazi regime themselves. So th- the contributions that they made were incredible. The, the human story of their struggle is really incredible. 
Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we, we mentioned, you know, uh, alien, alien, uh, uh, enemy aliens and, and all of that. There is, there is, of course, we, we should probably talk about a little bit the uh, internment of Japanese and the treatment of the Japanese on film, which is, again, kind of an interesting story. And like, obviously, there's the kind of, you know, broad, broadly racist aspect of all of this. Sure. But what I found really interesting in your book were, were the stories of the Chinese and Korean actors who kind of leapt yeah. at the opportunity to uh, portray the the imperial Japan as, you know, uh, as monstrous as as it was to their to their people. Absolutely. You know, I, I, the great Korean American actor Philip On, his father had actually been uh, a big figure in the Korean independence movement at the the turn of the twentieth century. Uh, you know, Chinese American actors, Anna Mae Wong, uh, Richard Liu. You know, they they all wanted to make the American public aware of what Japan was doing in China, in Korea, throughout Asia. Um, you know, even for some years leading up to the war, Anime Wong had been making films like there was one called King, King of Chinatown, um, uh, you know, that uh, ultimately had a, a theme of, you know, hey, Japan is doing terrible things to China. We really need to get involved and and America needs to be aware of this. There was, If there was little awareness in America of what the Nazis were doing in Europe, there was even less awareness really of what no. Japan was doing in China. Uh, so, you know, but part of that is, you know, in the case of someone like Richard Liu or Philip Bond, that meant that they actually would play villainous Japanese characters on screen. You could You could argue that that did have that did play into a narrative that could result in Japanese Americans being interned, which is really unfortunate. You also have to recognize that, you know, they, they, they had families back in Korea and China. They knew about the suffering there and they felt it was a patriotic duty to depict that and, and, you know, rally America into helping out and, and into fighting Japan um, they, they really saw it as a patriotic duty to their new country, to America, but also as a duty to the, the people who they knew back home and the suffering that they knew was happening there. And, and I don't think any of them ever regretted it. Um, you know, the, the internment of Japanese Americans during the war is one of the great blights of, of America's involvement in World War II. And I, with this book, with Hollywood Victory, I didn't want to create a hagiography. I wanted to show that, you know, not everything that we did was perfect. That's mm -hmm. obviously a massive uh, injustice. And and there were certainly others as well. I mean, we don't talk enough about how the armed forces were segregated, but when white and black soldiers would interact, often, you know, white servicemen would inflict violence on, on black servicemen, you know, within yeah. the ranks of, of our armed forces. And that's, that's something that's never talked about and, and actually happened a good bit. Um, you know, but I think it's interesting to see how, so something like that isn't talked about all that much, but at least with the, the case of the, of the internment of Japanese Americans, it's so fascinating to think that by like 1987, I think, you know, Ronald Reagan had signed into law reparations, Mm -hmm. Or for those who, for those Japanese Americans who had been interned and their descendants, that within like 45, 40 some years, there was a recognition that this was wrong. We need to atone for this. We need to, you know, have reparations for this. And, and that there was that pivot so quickly 
you know, signed into law by Reagan, someone who had acted in war films in Hollywood during this time in the 40s. Really impressive. Yeah. Uh, So let's uh, let's let's shift gears slightly here. Uh, There there was a very it's a very brief story in your in your book, but I I, want to highlight it because it is really interesting. It's a really interesting look at how the Germans were reacting to the the cinema out of out of America and elsewhere. There's a story in your book about the the Gestapo after the invasion of Poland, um, the Gestapo hanging. Uh, cinema owners who had shown confessions of a Nazi spy. Yeah. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about that and what confessions of a Nazi spy actually meant to the kind of the, uh, you know, both of the art of, of film coming out of Hollywood, but also like the propaganda efforts? Because I know Goebbels, not a fan. Uh, definitely not a fan. <laughs> Warner Brothers had engaged a little bit off screen with the Nazis throughout the 30s. Uh, they closed their office in Berlin pretty early on, I think like 1934. I think one of their staffers had been attacked. And mm-hmm. uh, so they they responded in kind by, by pulling out. Um, but Confessions of a Nazi Spy, you know, that was released in April of 1939. That was the first Hollywood movie to really confront the Nazis, say, hey, these guys are evil. We need to be aware of what they're doing. We need to stand up to them even if it means going to war. And you know, this is two and a half years before Pearl Harbor, more than two and a half years. This is not a message that people wanted to hear. Uh, so it, it wasn't a huge box office success by any means in the US, uh, but there was a real concern that Nazis living in America, Nazi sympathizers could attack the, the cast and crew. Some of those in the film who actually were refugees from the Nazis uh, had to live on the, the studio lot. They had to live on the Warner Brothers lot while making the movie. Uh, the kind of secrecy around that film was almost like the secrecy that you hear about like blockbuster tentpoles today. You know, there's only one <laughs> copy of a script. And, yeah. um, but uh, Germany was outraged by this. And I think that in part because, you know, they had a consul in Los Angeles named Gerard Gisling, who in the past had even reviewed Hollywood scripts to make certain that they passed muster with the Nazi ideology. And suddenly, here's at least one studio that doesn't care about that and actually is saying, we don't care if any of our films ever play in Germany again. And indeed, they didn't. You know, all Warner Brothers films were immediately banned. Um, I think that Goebbels in particular, and Hitler as well, who we know from Bud Schulberg and others actually exploring his his uh, one of his bunkers at the end of the war, um, he was a huge film fan, had, you know, tons of reels of celluloid um for different movies and kept a log like you know sort of like a kept a log of of his his viewings um they knew that that film was really powerful and uh and that it could sway public opinion and so you know if confessions of a nazi spy was being shown then in places like poland where they then conquered yeah they were going to kill those cinema owners and they did and uh, and it was you know there was a similar uh, reaction to su- some subsequent films like The Great Dictator uh, certainly, but um, but Confessions of a Nazi Spy was the first, and I think that it's a film that just doesn't get enough credit today. Weirdly, for for being so inflammatory and being and actually being a really good movie, I think it's I think it's just a thrilling kind of potboiler to watch, but also just the way that it mixes re- you know narrative uh dramatic footage with like sort of documentary elements very much mm-hmm. prefigures the why we fight films to come it's a very interesting movie I, I i always find it consistently 
I mean, entertaining as well as just an interesting time capsule. Um, but no, that, that movie, it's, it's, it needs to be rediscovered a bit more today. I hope that this book will do that in part, but, um, but back then it was, it was a, a cinematic hand grenade. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned the great dictator, uh, and there's, there's a, there's a really interesting part in your book where, uh, you're talking about, uh, you, you talk about two different reactions to triumph of the will. Um, the reaction that Frank Capra had and the reaction that Charlie Chaplin had mm-hmm. um, and kind of how that informed what they did uh, afterwards in the war. Could you could you talk about that a little bit and uh, and and what, uh, you know, what what they did in in in, in terms of filmmaking? Yeah. So on two separate occasions, uh, Frank Capra and Charlie Chaplin, they did not go together. They went on separate occasions, went to the Museum of Modern Art in New York City to watch. Lenny Reifenstahl's Triumph of the Will, her notorious propaganda documentary uh, about the Nuremberg Nazi Party Congress in 1934. And, you know, it's it's all about glorifying Hitler. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's done in such a, you know, processional way, such a full of such pageantry, almost like it's something that you would see out of like ancient Rome or something that it's, it's all about this regime celebrating its own grandeur. Uh, and when Capra saw this, he, he, he was devastated. He thought, we can't stand up to this. This, this is going, you know, this ideology is going to march across Europe. It's, I don't know how we can face this level of uniformity and this, you know, goose-stepping commitment. You know, and so for him, it inspired him to, as soon as Pearl Harbor happened, well, maybe not quite right away because he had to finish yeah. Arctic and Old Lace. But yeah. very quickly thereafter, get into uniform, move to Washington, D.C., set up shop at the Library of Congress, you know, bring some Hollywood writers with him and start writing the Why We Fight films about why we need to stand up to Nazi Germany and Japan as well. But those films are interesting because they are more singularly about Germany and, and the menace of the Nazi regime. Um, because that was still the kind of thing like people knew that, okay, we've been attacked. We need to get in uniform and fight, but why, like, why is this really important? There's something even deeper than just, you know, they hit us. Now we need to hit back, you know? So those, those films are really remarkable and confessions of a Nazi spy, I think is actually kind of like a prototype for those films in a way. Um, Chaplin's response though, upon, upon seeing triumph of the will was just howling laughter. He thought, this is ridiculous. How can anyone buy into this? This is nonsense. You know, this is self-evidently without merit, this whole ideology. How can anyone glorify this buffoon in Hitler? Um, so his approach was to, you know, take the piss out of uh, Hitler, so to speak, by, you know, showing, you know, by uh, making fun of him, by doing this elaborate comedy in The Great Dictator which really lays bare the emptiness, the barrenness of the Nazi ideology, the, the Nazi cult of personality. Um, and, and I think is w- one of his best films, if, if not his best film. That's a film that, to me, just holds up so incredibly well and is so funny and has so many different levels to it. Um, and, and was, a hu- was huge. You know, it was one of the top 10 biggest hits of 1940. Yep. You know, so by that point, public opinion was starting to shift a little bit. And you have to say as well, all right, so a lot of people probably went to see The Great Dictator just because of Chaplin and because they knew it would be funny and maybe not because they were necessarily going there to have a political experience, but then left with a new realization of, hey, 
what these what the Nazis are doing is really wrong and this is really unfair. I mean, The Great Dictator is the biggest film to that point to actually extensively, you know, use the word Jew and the word Jewish, identify the victims of the Nazi regime as Jewish people. These are fully fledged Jewish characters. Um, you know, you have an actor who had been prominent in the the Yiddish theater, who is one of the main Jewish characters in the film. Um, and, you know, other films had been very timid about that. They didn't want to necessarily say, oh, you know, the Nazis are bad because they're persecuting Jewish people. Because they knew that, you know, anti-Semitism was very widespread in America at that time. And that that would not necessarily be an impulse to get people to want to fight the Nazis, you know, to protect Jewish yeah. people. Um, the chaplain went there and then he, and that he did it with such, to such success that it was such a, a hit financially. And then, you know, best picture nomination at the Academy Awards, um, you know, I mean, just a massive triumph. I mean, it's hard to believe that then, you know, within just a few years, he was a pariah in America practically. But, uh, but that film I think is really transformative. And, you know, people over the years have like the film ends with this lengthy speech that he gives, um, where he basically just puts his his own point of view, his own philosophy on screen. And uh, that's been controversial over, is this, you know, uncinematic? Is this not? I, I, I personally find it really moving always um, because it's rare to see someone just be that genuine. Um, mm. And maybe it's a little corny, but sometimes corniness means that you're seeing something really genuine and real. And, uh, uh, but no, that, that film is incredible. And so you can, you can just see these two different strains, yeah, emerged from having seen Triumph of the Will and having had such different reactions to them, and both ultimately had a huge impact in ultimately taking on Hitler, shifting public opinion, and uh, you know marshalling the the forces of culture to take on this great evil. Yeah, I, it it is interesting to kind of like look at the the personalities because I mean, look, Hollywood is a personality driven business. It is it is this is you know people people like stories about people, and and this book is full of them. Uh, another another kind of interesting pairing is again not not because they did it together, but just because they both did kind of the same thing. The the the, the uh, excursions to South America that Walt Disney and Orson Welles made. I mean, I I know. Um, you know, if you're if you're familiar with the history of film, you know uh, all about Orson Welles going down to South America and getting kind of screwed out of his cut of the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, we can talk about that a little bit, but I, it's really interesting to 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 kind of read the stories about you know Disney and Welles going down there and and doing their their outreach uh, tours. Yeah, because there was a real concern that much of South America might join the Axis. Uh, Nazi Germany was making strong overtures to Brazil, Argentina, Chile. And, uh, and so, you know, the Roosevelt administration came up with this idea of the good neighbor policy to like show that, you know, America is going to, is going to be friendly to its neighbors. We're not going to, you know, wield some kind of, you know, imperialistic control over them. We're not going to invade them. We're going to, no, regard them as neighbors. And so there were a number of things that led up to that. You know, um, 1934, Roosevelt ended the U.S. military occupation of Haiti. That was like a big thing to show to the broader region. We want to engage with you on different terms. And so uh, in 1941, you know, he sent uh, Walt Disney, uh, who brought 18 animators with him uh, on this tour of South America to uh, engage, you know, do some cultural diplomacy um, and, and get ideas for some films that could represent Latin America in a different way to the American public. 
an American public that didn't really know much about South America really at this point, you know, and hadn't, it hadn't really been depicted on screen in, in that many ways. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just a massive success. You know, I mean, with by 19, so that this happened in 1941, um, in 1942, a year later, because of his efforts in part, but, but then Orson Welles following up the next year, um, going on a trip there as well. You know, Brazil ultimately did declare war on the Axis. Um, Argentina did not, but, uh, you, you know, and, and there were still some issues even going forward with them, like not wanting to show anti-Nazi Hollywood films, but, you know, at least they didn't declare war on the U.S. or something, which is something that could yeah. happen, you know? Um, yeah. But, uh, no, the, the Disney trip, I think, is really interesting because you can see ways in which it, it affected the Disney studio for years to come because it it meant that Disney was now closely aligned to the U.S. government, which would be the case throughout all of the war years. Um, the U.S. government would actually help financially support the Disney studio because it was really on rocky financial ground, teetering on bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, he got two great movies out of it, Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros, which I think are just a joy to watch. And like really some of the, like, the most fun that you can have like it's the most, those movies are like the most that Disney was ever kind of like the Tex Avery or Chuck Jones style, mm -hmm. almost like Warner Brothers style animation, like yeah. bright colors and it just pops and it's incredible. And yeah, Wells, I mean, you know, he was, the, you got to give, you got to give the guy credit. He, he took on so much in his career and he, especially in those early phases when he had had such success with Citizen Kane, but also such backlash with Citizen Kane. He then just was taking on so many different projects. You know, he helped uh, complete this film called Journey into Fear that Norman Foster had directed. Uh, he was working on that until like 4 a.m. or something. And then like the, the you know, within an hour or two, he was on a flight to South America. This is like in January of 1942. And, you know, basically going to pick up where Disney left off on a, on a, on a Goodwill tour. And, uh, you know... Famously, yeah, he had already finished, you know, Magnificent Ambersons, he thought. By that point, he was going to have, like, the work print sent to Rio, where he was going, to finish the edit. And uh, it was there was then a, a regime change at RKO, his studio, and it was taken out of his hands, and he didn't have final cut. And there is actually an expedition uh, about to happen. Uh, it may actually already be underway to uh, where there's going to be some um, search in Rio to see if that work mm. print still exists. Uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine that it, yeah. it's been 80 years. And uh, I don't know if, you know, we're the celluloid back then d deteriorated very quickly. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, he just took on so much like, all you know, maybe he would just suddenly add like a radio broadcast about, um, innovations in aviation to his docket. He'll, you know, have like a second radio broadcast ready to go about uh, what it means to be an American, you know, plus he's like editing one movie and planning another and planning on shooting a documentary in, in, in Rio. He had way too much going on. And uh, unfortunately, that did pivot his career in a direction, you know, that that veered away from success. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, again, fascinating. There, there are multiple books about this. You can, if you, if you oh, yeah. want to read about Orson Welles and his trip down there, uh, there, there are a bunch of good options for you. Um, let's talk, uh, let's talk, I mean, I think when people think about Hollywood and, uh, and, and the war, they think like war bonds, selling war bonds and like USO tours and that sort yeah. of thing. Let's talk about that little, that, that promotional aspect of it as well, because I do think there, it's an interesting 
you don't see this anymore, really. This sort of conflation of Hollywood and and uh, the government and the military, really. You really don't. And that's what's so interesting, that there had been such disunity in the 30s. There had been the isolationism we've talked about for a bit. But, you know, yeah, there were, there were all these, uh, you know, there was a House committee, which became the, the House on American Activities Committee, uh, led by Martin Dees in the 30s, uh, Texas Democratic congressman. Um, there was a Democratic senator from North Dakota, uh, Richard Nye, who was leading his own investigation into Hollywood. They were investigating like communist subversive activity in Hollywood, immorality in Hollywood, uh, all of this stuff. You know, they, they, Washington, D.C. had its sights set on Hollywood. And like, you know, they really were targeting the industry uh, in the 30s in a big way. And then suddenly it all changes. And, and I think it's, it's partly just that, and to an extent, we, we experienced this after 9-11 as well, that there's mm-hmm. this moment of profound unity. We've been attacked and we all have to come together to, you know, face our enemy as one. And, and eventually, you know, things will fray a bit, things will fragment. Are we approaching this in the best way? Are we not? So there were some of those discussions during World War II as well, but, you know, yeah, you see, Right away, like two days after, uh, no, it was, it was uh, three days after Pearl Harbor on December 10th, uh, 1941, you have all these Hollywood stars gather at the Roosevelt Hotel in, in, in Hollywood, all bedecked in glittering jewels and tuxes and all this to form the Hollywood Victory Committee. And this would be their, you know, sort of coordinated approach to entertaining the troops going on what would become like USO tours and um, sometimes, you know, going to the front lines and putting themselves in harm, harm's way to just give soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines a, a good time. Um, but it also meant, you know, raising money. Um, yeah, the federal income tax was much higher back then than it is today. Um, the Roosevelt administration basically got rid of like all possible deductions. It's like, so like you really had to pay your taxes <laughs> during this time to fund the war effort. Yeah. But the U.S. government needed more money even on top of that, you know? they So war bonds were basically a way, like, you can pay addition, additional taxes on top of the taxes that you've already paid. Uh, and you'll get it back with a nominal uh, bit of interest after the war, like, very nominal. Um, but, it's it, you know, that was like a way of, yeah, give you know, the U.S. government needs money, and you can help, really help with this. This is something that you can do. So, like, you could go into any movie theater in the country – and buy a war bond. Like, you know, like you buy your yeah. ticket to see whatever you're going to see and you buy a war bond. And that, that, that's, that right there is remarkable, that level of integration between the government and the movie business. But, you know, all these stars went on tours, you know, to, to raise money. I mean, like Marlena Dietrich herself, you know, did raise so much money, you know, like basically, you know, sitting on the laps of a lot of wealthy businessmen, you know, at, in smoky nightclubs, you know, really uh getting them to open their their pocketbooks yeah. and raise millions and millions of dollars i mean it's it's just an extraordinary thing that she did that um you know and carol lombard of course went on uh was one of the first to go on a big war bonds tour died uh just yeah. six weeks after pearl harbor in a plane crash it was kind of like hollywood's first casualty of the war um but you know so many ways there were so many ways that hollywood was engaged in this you know we, we talk about the Hollywood Canteen as well, this amazing nightclub that Betty Davis and John Garfield created where, you know, servicemen and women could, you know, anyone in uniform could come and be entertained by their favorite stars. 
get up close to their stars, like sometimes be like served coffee or donuts by their favorite stars. You know, it's like Rita Hayworth might take your coat at the door. Uh, Gary Cooper could be in the kitchen preparing a meal for you. Uh, Lana Turner could be pouring you coffee. You know, then you could like go and dance on the dance floor, you know, with Hedy Lamarr. Um, it's the most amazing thing that that happened. It was a, a, a collapsing of hierarchies and a democratization of Hollywood that, you know, I think does set the stage in a way for social media and the, these feelings that you can be, you know, really close to your Hollywood stars today. But actually, that was more genuine because you really were close to them. Whereas yeah. a lot of the social media democratization yeah. is kind of fake, you know, because you're not really actually interacting with, with these people. But um, no, it's just, it's, it's, it's a really unique thing that, that, that the entire industry pivoted in this way so quickly. And the only real um, correlation I can think of is, is the feeling after nine yeah. 11. Yeah. I mean, I like, you also have folks who are actually serving in the war. I mean, I, I like, I, the, the stuff about Jimmy Stewart and this is really interesting to me because again, I knew Jimmy Stewart flew in world war two. I knew he flew, you know, 20, 20 bomber missions and, yeah. and is, you know, it's, one of the things people know, but like, I didn't realize he had actually enlisted before Pearl Harbor. I, I, that was not, I did not realize that. Nine months before that he was foresighted enough to know that war is inevitable. This is going to happen. And, and so, and, you know, and there were a few others who felt that way too, you know, Marion C. Cooper, um, co-director of King Kong and a number of other really fun movies, uh, helped organize the flying tigers, the American volunteer, Flyers unit in China that basically served as the Chinese National Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the early part of the 40s. Um, that's something, you know, Marion C. Cooper left his Hollywood career behind to go do that, to go help out China. That's really impressive. John Ford, you know, uh, basically he was in the Navy Reserve. He uh, saw to it that he could be called up and to active duty. And, you know, months, I mean, like a year before Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and was, you know, already making films for them, went on a bit of his own, like scouting, using his yacht around, uh, the Baja Peninsula to see what like Japanese fishing trawlers were doing there, which he thought were five ships. Maybe, maybe they were, uh, but Jimmy Stewart, yeah, signed up nine months beforehand. You know, partly I think he was dissatisfied with his roles in Hollywood at that point. Um, he had just won the, he had literally just won the Oscar for best actor for the Philadelphia story. And like mm-hmm. just a few weeks later is in uniform having enlisted in the army because he was that dissatisfied. I think with his Hollywood career to that point, including Philadelphia story, which I, I, I don't think he was a big fan of, but, um, but also just a, a recognition that this is where things are going to go. And I want to be ready. He had already had some pilot experience and, you know, a few hundred hours in the air at least. And, um, and he wanted to go on that path, even though like the cutoff for uh, entry into the Army Air Forces at that point was like 26. He was 32. Mm-hmm. You know, he still worked his way into it. He, he, he did the work and by the, you know, rises from like a private, you know, upon enlistment all the way up to colonel by the time of D-Day. And, you know, it was coordinating missions out of, uh, you know, a base in, in East in, in East Anglia, you know, commanding hundreds of men. Um, didn't actually fly over Normandy himself that day. There have been some right. reports that he did. That is not true. Okay. Um, but uh, it's very impressive, the work that he did during that time, putting himself in harm's way, um, losing men under his command, having to write, you know, condolence letters. Um, 
it's it's really remarkable and you can see it on his face he he aged dramatically from like 1940 yeah. 41 to the time you see him in uh it's a wonderful life his return to hollywood in 1946 yeah i it's it's really just it's crazy to think about i mean i yeah. like I, I don't even I, I guess the the equivalent would be like Pat Tillman signing up after 9-11. It's like the it's yeah. the closest thing. And like Pat Tillman, not exactly the same stature as Jimmy Stewart at this time. You know, he was good. Anyway, it's it's crazy story. Crazy, crazy story. Um, I, the, there's one more thing I, I'm, I'm going to ask one more thing and I'll let you go. I'll let you get out of here. Um, I want to I want to talk. I want you to talk about casablanca yeah and the making of casablanca and the cast of casablanca in particular you know this is uh what one of the things you you write about in your book is how it was a cast of refugees and it was a cast of you know european expats who were uh who were pouring themselves into the movie but let's talk i mean casablanca is in many ways i think the enduring great film from this time. I don't, I'm, I'm not going out on a huge limb here. This is not, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not making a, uh, a, a shocking uh, statement uh, to say that Casablanca is a great movie. Um, but it is, it really is interesting uh, looking at the, how it was made and who made it uh, yeah. and how that helped turn it into something so great. Well, you know, when talking about Hollywood today, there's, there's so much discourse about how representation matters and how, you know, who is cast in a part, you know, that that can really have an effect on the performance, the way that a particular group is seen, the way that, you know, that's what happened with Casablanca. That actually, this is actually a really great example of how representation does matter because you only have three American actors in the whole movie. You have Humphrey Bogart, Dooley Wilson, and then uh, the daughter of a Warner Brothers producer who plays the the Bulgarian girl uh, who's mm-hmm. uh, beseeching Rick to help her out, you know, while her husband's at the roulette table trying to win money for their exit visa. That's it. Everyone else, you know, had actually been a refugee in some form, many of them from the Nazis. Um, you know, you've got S.C. Sakal and Conrad Veidt and... Uh, you know, Peter Lorre, my God, um, you know, and, and so many others in small roles too, you know, who maybe are just there for like a moment, but, you know, you know, various characters like there's, uh, you know, there's Yvonne who was only, you know, 19 at the time, the French girl who is like Rick's uh, girlfriend at the beginning. And then he sort of spurns her and she's upset. And then we see her with a Nazi soldier. Well, she in real life was married to Marcel Dalio, who played the uh, the croupier in the film Emile. And uh, you know, he's all upset when he actually does lose a good bit of money for the house. At one point, he apologizes to Rick and all this. Marcel Dalio, you know, much older than her, but they were married. And uh, she was actually the last surviving member of the cast until just a few years ago. Um, and you know, that's a real. That's like both both she and her husband had fled. Uh, the Nazis during the fall of France, you know, just we're talking about just like a little over two years before. And uh, they had to like first um, sail, I think, to Brazil and then to Mexico and eventually made their way to America. She didn't speak a word of English. Um, He, you know, Marcel Dalio was Jewish himself. And literally when the Nazis had taken over France, they put up and they put up their anti-Semitic propaganda about like rounding up Jews and wanting to, you know, send them to concentration camps. They used his image, an image of Marcel Dalio's face as the, as, as an image of like, this is who you should be looking for. This is an example yeah. of, you know, a, a typical Jew um, in their, you know, horrible anti-Semitic parlance. 
and um they and and so you know you you think about that like oh my god this guy who's in Casablanca he was his face was on thousands and thousands of posters back in France you know to, to be representative of the Nazis you know anti-semitic mission and um you know, and there's so many others like that. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, you, so the, the German guy who's, uh, uh, you know, playing a Nazi briefly, who's like Yvonne's boyfriend. Then later on when she comes back in, you know, and she's on his arm and, uh, Oh, look, she has a new boyfriend now and it's a German soldier like that guy. I don't even know if he has a line in the movie, but he was a refugee of the Nazis himself. Like he was gay. And so he mm-hmm. had the Nazis for that reason. Um, and like Conrad Veidt, the villain of the film who plays major Strasser, such a great character, you know, so such a snarling villain. Conrad Veidt was not Jewish himself, but he had to flee the Nazis because he was married to a Jewish wife. So he fled, you know, 1933, shortly after they took power. Um, this is somewhat, you know, Conrad Veidt goes back in German cinema to like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari in 1919. Yeah. I mean, he is as yeah. foundational a figure in German cinema really as you can get. And, and here he had to flee as well. And, you know, when he made it to Hollywood, he made as a condition of signing with Warner brothers. I only want to play Nazis if they are absolute (laughs) villains, you know, because I want to portray them for who they are and what I believe them to be. And, you know, really what, what they are. And, and so that was, you know, and he knew that he could do that. He knew that he could pull that off and, and portray them as the villains they were. And so he's this iconic villain in Casablanca who's so great. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the tragedy there is that he actually didn't even really get to see the huge success of the film before it even um, won Best Picture at the Academy Awards. Uh, he had died actually uh, playing golf. He had a heart attack at the Bel Air Country Club and died on the spot. Um, but, you know, Billy Wilder, who had no involvement with Casablanca, but, you know, like many was taken with that film and, and loved it, you know, said afterward that making that movie must have been like, you know, a reunion for so many of these people in the cast. I mean, that they, you know, many of them had worked together in, in the German film industry in Berlin back in the day before the Nazis. You know, they they knew each other, and then now to be making this movie together, where they could make a statement about what they had been through, because this is a film about refugees. These are people who have left Europe, are in this way station in Morocco, and are waiting, 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 waiting. Like the narrator says at the beginning, to get out, and um, that to be able to memorialize that experience in that way must have been so meaningful. Uh, and it's also the ultimate, we, we've talked a bit here about America's isolationism and the rapid pivot to this unified front in facing global fascism. And that's completely allegorized in Casablanca. In Rick, you have someone who, I stick my neck out for nobody. You know, He wants to just run his business, not care about politics, not, in, not get involved in this. You know, And by the end of the film, he's become a true believer. He's, he's gone from cynic to idealist. And that, that shift is what Hollywood went through, is what America as a whole went through. So if Casablanca is the definitive wartime film, it's because it really does articulate the mindset of America and the shift that had occurred so beautifully. 
Yeah. Christian, I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, go watch Casablanca if you haven't seen it and read his book, Hollywood Victory, uh, the movies, stars, and stories of World War II. Uh, very glad to have you on. Really appreciate it. I think people will enjoy this. There's, there is, as I said, every chapter in this book could be a book on its own. I mean, it's really, it's, it's fascinating stuff. So pick it up Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. And we will be back next week with another episode of The Polar Coast of Hollywood. See you guys then. Thank you.